Hello, I'm Ben Hansen-Hicks, and this is the So What Do You Do podcast. Every week we'll be talking to someone in a different industry, finding out what their day-to-day lives are really like, and what tips and advice they have on how to break in or move across into their industries. I hope you enjoy listening. This week, we're going to be talking to criminal barrister and acclaimed author, Mohsin Zaidi. Mohsin, in 2020, released a beautiful memoir of his life growing up gay in a religious Muslim household, Dutiful Boy, which has gone on to win both critics and readers' praise across the board. Growing up in the East London suburb of Walthamstow, in a tight-knit Shia Muslim community, to mum, dad and two brothers, it seems Mohsin was destined for great things even then. As a young boy at his local comprehensive school, Mossin went on to become the very first from his school to go to Oxford University, against all odds, to study law. Talk about pressure to perform. From there it goes up and up, clerking for a Supreme Court judge with a hilarious story, also in his book, about how he ended up unknowingly sharing his dating messages with then-supervisor Judge Lord Wilson. Mossin is now a criminal barrister in white-collar crime at CKBW College Hill, and alongside publishing his memoir, has also been junior counsel for the Serious Fraud Office in the record-breaking prosecution deal with the global aerospace company Airbus, which resulted in a very cool and casual global fine of more than 3.6 billion euros, or 3.1 billion pounds. Mossin is now also a trustee of the UK's leading LGBTQ rights charity, Stonewall, as well as being on the board of governors at his old comprehensive school in Walthamstow. While it's great to have you with us, Mossin Zadie, I just have to ask, is there anything you can't do? Oh God, plenty. Um, I, uh, I can't cook, I can't sing, um, I am really bad, what am I also really bad at? I, um... I'm really bad at aesthetics, so I'm bad at dressing myself. My fiance has to help me with that. Um, he thinks that I have hideous taste in clothes. Um, and uh, yeah, there's loads of things I'm bad at. And all the things that you've listed, you know, the thing is with those introductions is you only get the highlights of the good bits, right? There's been plenty of, of things that I've been really bad at and failed at along the way. Um, so those introductions always make me, make me cringe, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just to, just think of it as something for the listeners. If uh, if you if you're cringing really really hard internally, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, first question: If you think back to yourself at sixteen, you're just finishing year eleven, and for anybody listening who isn't in the UK, year eleven is the last year of compulsory education. Did you have a career in mind? Where did you want to end up? I didn't have a career in mind. I think that when you are from a working class background, in particular, and I know I don't sound like it, but I am. Um, you don't uh, really have much of an idea of anything to do with the future because you're not really told that you're going to have a future. Um, so I don't think I had much of a clue. Uh, because I was brought up by two Pakistani parents, they wanted me to be either a lawyer or a doctor, but but all South Asian parents kind of want that for their kids. Um, and so I guess that was the default and I was rubbish at science. So I think I kind of always thought, oh, maybe I'll be a, a, a lawyer. And my granddad, I never didn't really know him. <clears throat> he was in Pakistan, but he was a lawyer. And so I think I thought um, that it made sense to try and do that. 
And so you went on to study law at Oxford. Was it always Oxford or nothing? I did read um, in your book um, that there was a moment where your dad was talking about Imran Khan and he went to Oxford. Did that, was that the sort of the catalyst? No, no, it was never Oxford or nothing. I think that's so presumptuous. I mean, I think to, you know, I try not to bang on about, bang on about class too much, but I think to live in a world where you think it's Oxford or nothing is is a very privileged world indeed. And I didn't come from that background. Um, in fact, I wasn't even going to apply to Oxford. The only reason I did was because my parents made me. Um, I thought it was a waste of uh, an application because you're only allowed to apply then. You're only allowed to apply to six places. And I just thought, well, what's the point? Like, because people like Imran Khan go there, why, you know, why would I be able to get in? So uh, it was a very speculative application. And um, when I did get in, I actually called the admissions office to double check whether or not they'd made a mistake because I didn't believe it. That's, I mean, I I mean, I also, I, I probably don't sound like it, but I grew up on like EMA, like ev- absolutely every sort of state um, benefit that we could have. Um, so my, yeah, my parents are, my dad is a, or an oak timber framer and my mum is a joiner. Um, so they were the, I was the first of our, yeah, of our family to go, like our close family to go to uni. But um, yeah, it's sometimes it's like you have a very single track mind or I, like I, I can sometimes have a very single track mind. You know, it's a normal question, right? But um, it's a question I get asked a lot. And I always want to, I guess, think about the 16 year old me. And how did I think back then? And it's so easy to be like, yeah, I always wanted to be a lawyer, but I didn't, like, I didn't care. I didn't think about that. All I wanted to do was to be able to take care of my mum and make sure that she didn't have to work as hard as she was working. Um, So that was really the only thing I worried about. So when you were at Oxford, did, how did life there influence your decision to sort of head in the the direction of criminal law above all the other branches of, of law? So I used, before I was a criminal lawyer, I was actually a commercial lawyer at a big law firm. So I used to be a solicitor and then I became a barrister. And to be honest, what really influenced my decision to become a a commercial lawyer was the fact that they were going to pay for my legal education. So after, even if you've done a law degree, afterwards there is a year of training um, or a year of legal exams. It's a course that you have to do. And it costs like 20 grand and I couldn't afford that. And uh, big law firms offered to pay for it for you. Whereas uh, if you wanted to be a barrister, you had to pay for it yourself. And so I decided that I would go down the safe route and have a big law firm pay for it for me. Um, And so that's why I became a solicitor. But I think I always knew that somewhere um, along the way I wanted to be a barrister. It was just about when when I could afford to do it because barristers are self-employed. And so really you need a safety net when you get started. So I worked as a solicitor for six years and saved to build up that safety net so that when I did transfer over to the bar, uh, it didn't matter that I wasn't earning very much to begin with. That's, that's interesting. And I, I'm, I think for people listening, they might not know. I mean, this is maybe a basic question for you, but what, what is the difference if you're, if you're listening um, and you don't know the difference between a solicitor and a barrister other than being self-employed and one is not self-employed? Yeah, so in very simple terms, the difference is the barrister goes to court when there is something to argue about and the solicitor does everything else. 
And that's that's really simple. And there's a lot more complexity to that. And I'm sure that a lot of my professional colleagues would be upset with that distinction. But because this is for people who are trying to figure out what career they want, I'm going to keep it in simple terms. And was was law and law and ethics something you were particularly aware of or sort of drawn to as a child? Or were they values that have maybe been instilled um, in you and your brother by your parents? I'm not sure the combination of the two was ever something that I thought about, but I, I guess um, moral responsibility is something that has always been somewhere floating around because when you grow up in a really religious household, your all of your behaviour is governed by um, these rules and the belief that God is watching everything. So um, Muslims tend to say, inshallah, in, it, after a sentence where you're hoping for something to go right in the future. Is that, that's God willing, isn't it? Yeah. So, for example, oh, um, today I'm going to win the lottery, inshallah. And then if you're going to talk about something that's happened in the past, um, you'll say, mashallah. So, for example, today I won the lottery, mashallah. And so that's like, uh, thanks to God. Um, so everything that you do is governed by this idea of being, you know, um, I guess, accountable for your actions. Um and although that can seem quite stressful, actually, it's a really good way of making sure that we behaved. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, and how how is your expectation of what the job as a criminal barrister would be? Has it rung true with what you thought it would be before you sort of you started? I think being a criminal barrister is an incredibly um, rewarding and ch- and intellectually challenging job. I love being self-employed and I love the freedom of having more uh, flexibility over the cases that you do and don't work on although there is a principle that says you take the first thing that comes along and of course I abide by that principle but the first thing that comes along if you're in a criminal chambers is criminal work so um, there are parts of it that did fulfill those expectations um, and I really love for example advocacy in front of a jury. I love the closing speech and trying to convince them of guilt or innocence, depending on whether you're prosecuting or defending. I guess um, what I didn't prepare for so much is how stressful being self-employed is. Um, I think particularly when you come from a a poorer background, uh, because having spent six years on a salary and knowing that a certain amount of money was coming in every month, um, you don't really worry about it. And then suddenly there's this whole other layer of complexity to your working life where you're constantly thinking about when money's going to come in. You don't know how much is yours because you pay tax at the end of the year and not every month. Um, And you get given VAT money, which is not yours, and you have to give to the government. So I think that was the bit that I enjoyed the least, was the kind of never really knowing how much money was mine and how much was the government's. And so how did you, how did you um, then go on to um, end up in uh, working in white collar crime specifically at the, uh, the chambers that you are at the moment? So Sith KBW is the, without wanting to sound you know, arrogant, it's, it is arguably the best criminal chambers in the country. And so when they offered me a job, there was no way I was going to say no. White collar crime was, I guess, white collar crime basically means... Um, fraud, bribery, corruption. So it's generally committed by executives working in companies. Um, 
And that was, I guess it complemented what I'd done as a solicitor because I'd been a commercial solicitor. So I understood the world of companies and then I wanted to be a criminal lawyer and this combined the two. Um, and 6KBW was the best place to do it. So when they offered me the job, I bit their hands off. There are, if you scroll on Netflix or any of the streaming platforms, there are not like so many legal programs. Has, has, is there any one in particular that you think is the most sort of truthful representation of, of your sort of, of your day to day or sort of anywhere near a day to day for you? No. <laughs> and that's a good thing because drama, um, drama is that is the kind of interesting bits of life with the boring bits taken out. And as a lawyer, although there are some really, really cool and interesting high points of drama, particularly when you're defending somebody and you're waiting for the jury to return its verdict, and then the, jur the jury comes in and you're kind of looking at your client and you're really worried and you're really stressed and there's that pause between when they say, yes, we've re reached a verdict, and then they tell you what the verdict is. Um, that That is dramatic, but... No TV show can replicate the sometimes monotonous process and the, the rigorous process of going through everything with a fine tooth comb and reading documents over and over and rehearsing your closing speech. And so I would say that, no, I don't think I can point to any one TV show as being representative. And if it were representative, it probably wouldn't be worth watching. <laughs> Is there is there a the level of sort of uh, almost almost it's theatrics in it in it maybe that's maybe um, cheapening it but is there is there a is is that something that you're comfortable with sort of presenting an idea in a very sort of elo eloquent and sort of thought provoking way to sort of obviously win the case for your for your your client? Absolutely, it's really fun. It's um, it's. It's it, there is an element of performance, and but there's also loads of passion, and you're the kind of writer of the script and the actor that delivers it. Um, and if you do a good job, then you've just helped somebody avoid prison, for example. And so there's so much at stake, and it feels exhilarating. There is. It, it's also easy to forget that somebody's life is on the line. So, you know, you have clients who are facing two, two three years in prison and, and the more senior you get, the longer that figure becomes. So although, you know, I, I would be lying if I said there wasn't, it wasn't performative, um, the reason to get that right, the reason to nail it and to really do the best you can at convincing the jury is not to because you're trying to win an Oscar, but because you're trying to convince them of what you're saying. Um, yeah with that level of work and that level of tightrope walking have you ever experienced burnout at work and what sort of advice if you have would you give to those starting out or sort of maybe in in the depths of law to protect themselves against it well, it's funny you should ask that because I think I'm probably I've got two weeks off at the moment and I'm not in London and I think that that's because I've experienced burnout the last few weeks and so obviously I, the first thing I would say is take time off, but really you want to avoid getting to that point because no job is worth sacrificing your health for. And I think particularly during lockdown, it is easy to just get up and work and then work all day. Um, what advice would I give? I mean, 
I have, I've got a meditation app and I'm terrible at using it. And so I'm trying to use it every day. Um, I think exercise is really important and I actually really enjoy exercise. I think it's really good for your mind as well as your body. So I make sure that I exercise um, frequently and I guess getting enough sleep. I mean, they're all basic things, but they're really important. I, I think the other thing is, particularly in the law, we buy into our own self-importance quite easily. And I mean, unless you're a heart surgeon, unless you're a surgeon who's saving somebody's life, nothing's that important. If you're a criminal barrister defending somebody um, from jail, that is really, really important. But generally speaking, most people don't have those sorts of jobs. And so nothing's that important. That perspective of being able to detach yourself from the stress of your work environment is critical. And I also think it's not just about well-being, it's also about doing the best job you can. I think you're much more likely to do a brilliant job if you have the perspective that it's just a job, actually. In terms of uh, working as a barrister in, in the court system, there have been um, grimly, in, in my opinion, far too many stories of barristers whose skin colour is not white being mistaken as a defendant in courts up and up and down the country. What what are your what are your thoughts on this? Have you have you ever con- uh, encountered moments like this yourself? I have, I have. I've been mistaken for the defendant a few times, and. Um, to be honest, although it is frustrating, um, what's more frustrating is the number of the disproportionate number of ethnic minorities who find themselves in prison. So what you have to ask is, why is it that when I walk into a courtroom, the magistrate thinks that I'm the defendant? Now, it's a combination of things. It's because like the, 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 the bar is such an elite place and because it's self-employed, you have to be more like, you more likely have to be middle class or above in order to join it. And so ethnic minorities are disproportionately more likely to be poor, which means they're less likely to be barristers. So when I'm walking in, um, there's that going on. Then what's also going on is the gross level of criminalization of black, brown and other ethnic minorities in this country. So... Um, for example, uh, we make up 13% of the British population, <clears throat> and yet we make up 15, 50, 50, 50% of the number of uh, children in prison in, in the UK. Um, and now either you put that, dis- that difference down to inherently more crim- criminal behaviour, which I think is racist or you think there is something else going on um you know we know the figures on stop and search that young black men are, i think 11 times more likely to be stops and search for young asian men it's something like five times more likely um the group of um people most likely to receive the longest custodial sentence so the longest amount of time in prison is asian men um so there are lots of ways in which um the criminal justice system polices black and brown people but it's not just about race it's also about class so and I think it's really important that we look at that intersection of race and class because so often people talk about it in just in terms of race and it's not just that like a lot of the vast majority of the people we're talking about are also from working class backgrounds Um, and so their class has to be um, mentioned or it has to be considered as part of the problem because it's only then that you will come up with a proper solution. 
sort of putting it into putting it into a question that doesn't last for the length of this podcast is just like I've, I've yeah I mean I've re I've read and reread um, uh, why I'm why I'm no longer talking about um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Yes, I re- I've read that. I read that last first time last year with when the George Floyd protests were were kicking off, and then I've just reread it every couple of months, and it just yeah, there's just there's 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 generations and generations of of it all the way back from sort of colonialism and now now neo colonialism and sort of modern slavery that it's just yeah, it's a uh, it's a complicated brew. Um, in in very light terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's important to remember that um, it's really easy for people to reach to America and say, you know, oh, well, that's an American problem. And to, I think the George Floyd protests were really significant for us in the UK. But there are plenty of examples in the UK of police brutality um, and we, I think, need our own reckoning and we shouldn't be too reliant on what's going on in America because we have a very different ethnic makeup to America. Um, for example, the biggest ethnic minority in the UK is South Asian, 7.3%. Um, and I think black people make up about 3.2%. So just percentage-wise, we have a different setup, a different makeup. But but actually, if you look at the statistics, what we said earlier, like stop and search, like if you're a young black man, you're 11 times or 13 times more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. Like what's going on there when some a, a proportion that makes up 3% of the population is dealing with that, being subjected to that sort of criminalization? There is a problem. Um, and the other thing is we have our own examples. For example, there's a uh, a guy who was a former Aston Villa football player called uh, Dalian Atkinson, who whose murder trial actually continues at the moment. Um, and a police officer not only tasered him for, I think it was like 27 seconds more than necessary, but they actually kicked him in the head. Um, and this happened in the UK and he died. Um, well, have you, I mean, there was, there was the, they've just like a month ago announced that the two Met officers, Met, serving Met police officers who found um, the, oh God, it's actually a friend of mine. Um, uh, the, the two women, it was a mother and a daughter who had been in a park, who'd been killed and they've only just, just had a court date announced. And that's after a whole year of protest going on and carrying on you you sort of you mentioned you touched on that um you don't think we've the uk has had its its reckoning yet and this that change what do you think what do you think needs to happen for that to happen i think that we need to center class more in the debate i think that too often we um try and divide race and class and um it's I think it's problematic, particularly in Britain. I think we are such a classed, entrenched society. Um, if you are an ethnic minority, as I said earlier, you are disproportionately more likely to be poor, working class. Um, and I think that what uh, the political discourse does quite effectively is divide 
the white working classes from black and brown and other ethnic minority working classes. And I think that's a pro- that's a problem because you make it seem as if they're against each other when they're not. Like um, the working classes in this country are disproportionately more likely to die. They're disproportionately more likely to be put in prison. They're disproportionately more likely to uh, not have the same economic opportunities as the rest of us. And so... But the same is also true of ethnic minorities. But it's because they're from poorer backgrounds. Now, yeah, okay, race does play a part. And I'm, you know, actually, when you look at some statistics, the only way to account for them is race alone. But the thing is, I just think that um, what we are not very good at is being able to put the two together. And what it allows, particularly the right to do, is to turn this into a culture war. And um, it's not a culture war. It's about trying to make the standards of living for people, the poorest in our society, uh, higher than they are currently. Um, And I think race is a part to play in that, but I think class is also a really significant part to play. And I think that as, as long as we continue to ignore that, we feed a culture war. Another reason you should come to Denmark because and just witness, just sort of see the uh, it's a gear shift if when you think of it in society terms because it's much more egalitarian um, and the tax system is is built in a way that means that the majority of the population sits within the same bracket there's obviously both like opposite ends as well but like there's much less of a class system here it's much more nearly nearly everybody i would i mean i don't have the figure to hand but like i would say about 70% sit very very comfortably in a very comfortable bracket so that they've the- yeah i mean it's called isn't it called like considerate capitalism the scandinavian mm. model and I, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. Definitely, and it's and it is also social wealth or wealth. The welfare sort of state, in a way, is built in. You have free education until master's level. You have, you have free childcare. You so all of these stumbling blocks that you hit if you're in England, uh, if if you're on the lower end of the income scale, you don't necessarily hit in Denmark. God, maybe I should just move there. <laughs> but they they also <laughs> well you should you should come visit you should come visit because there is but it's 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 not the rosy version of hygge there's a really there's a really good word that is not very very nice but it's a good word to remember when you think of hygge is there is hygge racism if you are like a hygge racist you're basically somebody who makes a joke that is on the edge of being racist because you're making a joke and that's the way that you can you can back it up and you can say oh i'm just joking it's like if you're joking just think it don't say it like just wind your neck in like don't but like and if you look at the eth- like the ethnic um breakdown of denmark it's something like it's almost on par with japan i think it's like 85 percent white right so there are there are lots of immigrant communities, especially in Copenhagen, because it's obviously it's a it's a place that if you're if you're a refugee or an asylum seeker, and you don't necessarily know everywhere in Denmark, because I mean why would you? Because Denmark is tiny. There there are lots of um, sort of second, third, fourth generation who still feel, I my hair isn't blonde, I'll never fit in here. Wow, which is which is gut punching. So come and come and visit, but also yeah, not with rose tinted goggles. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, it's not all, uh, yeah, crime dramas and, uh, and knitted sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> um, so how do you balance your work and personal life as a criminal barrister? Very badly. I'm trying to get better at it. Uh, I... And I said earlier that the gym is like, I really like exercising. So I make sure that I get out to exercise. And um, I actually, I mean, one good thing, although it didn't feel like a good thing in my 20s, was that I really hate working in the evenings. I'm really bad at it. I kind of, I just turn off and I do my best work in the mornings. So generally around six, seven o'clock, unless there is a massive deadline, I naturally have to just switch off. Um, uh, what else do I do? I, you know, I, I, it's, it's really bad because I need to get better at actually do... I, lo- I, I love reading, actually, and that's a newfound passion um, because when I first wanted to write a book, uh, my agent told me that to be a good writer, you need to be a good reader. And I didn't grow up in a house of readers. So I've started to do much more of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the emba- I'm embarrassingly bad at answering this question because I need to get better at, at balancing my time. And so, I mean, by this point, and as I mentioned in the introduction, you're now not only a qualified criminal barrister with huge cases behind you or sort of under your belt, and you're now also a critically acclaimed author. Um, these are huge milestones to achieve, uh, even sort of by the time you're 50. You're still very young. What is next? What's next on your on your list? I, I wish I knew. Um the the kind of what is next question is the question that always plagues me but it's probably the reason why i end up trying trying to do some stuff that i find interesting um i don't know is the is the honest answer um i would love to keep writing and i've i'm writing for some newspapers at the moment but i and i think i'd like to write a book i'm doing some tv writing i don't know if that will come of anything so we'll see um but yeah i mean I think the main thing is I want to keep doing stuff that I find interesting and stuff that I think actually matters. So, yeah, doing stuff I care about that is about the causes that that are closest to my heart is probably what I'd like to keep doing. Um, And there's a lovely, lovely passage in your book um, that I couldn't help but laugh laugh about um, when you were deciding um, to tell your parents about proposing to your now fiancé, Matthew, um, and them them being so excited that they wanted to, and they they did not take no for an answer, come out shopping with you. Yeah. Can you you treat us like a fly on the wall for that? (laughs) Yeah, basically. I, um, you know, so by the end of the book, they have accepted... My, not only my sexuality but my relationship with Matthew which is great but then there was kind of like one final frontier where I was going to have to tell them that because marriage was really important to him and I guess it was important to me in some ways but it was kind of I had a complicated relationship with it but it fun, fundamentally it was important to him but I wanted the proposal to be about us so I wanted to get the kind of telling my parents out of the way first um, and I was really worried about telling them uh, and then when I did finally tell them they uh, not only did they say hurry up before he dumps you um, but they insisted on going ring shopping with me so then I had this really surreal moment where I'm standing in this shop looking over at my parents who are searching for rings for my potentially future husband um, and I just think that I felt like the luckiest person on the planet because I never ever in my wildest dreams could have imagined that that's i mean that is just 
full acceptance and that is that's what you wish for every 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 person growing up queer it's just just to have that acceptance because your parents mean everything when you're growing up and just I don't know about you but you just all I just always had that thing of wanting to be to them proud at some point whether it was now or in the future and yeah yeah and you have I mean your your uncle in the book is is a particular ray of sunshine <laughs> he is he's he, he was a wonderful man um and he I you know I I, I wish that every child, every queer child, has a has an aunt or uncle like him, because uh, he was extremely supportive from the very from the very beginning, where others weren't. And um, so now we're moving back to more of the career questions. Um, what would you say to somebody aspiring to carve out a career in law themselves? What's the most important lesson that you've learned? Um, your primary relationship is with documents and um, for some people that's a brilliant thing and for others it's a really challenging thing and so I think it's really important to know how much of your time requires you to be reading and thinking carefully and paying a lot of attention to the detail Um, and if you're good at that and if you can do that really well you're going to excel as a lawyer but if you think that um, you're not going to be so good at that, then maybe think about whether or not it's the right career for you. Because being a barrister, advocacy is really important, but the advocacy is kind of the last piece of the puzzle. The Most of the puzzle is looking at lots of documents and trying to come up with the best argument. And do you, um, and this is, this is maybe a silly question, but for many, for people listening, it might be an interesting one. What, what subjects do you need to study, to read law at university? Are there some universities that insist on certain subjects or are they much more a grade focused uh, way of looking at things? Um, you can study whatever you like. In fact, a lot of the best universities discourage law A-level. So don't study law A-level if you don't want to. I mean, you can if you want to, but you don't necessarily have to. Um, no is the answer. You can study whatever you like uh, and still do a law degree. The thing is, you don't need a law degree to be a lawyer. So some in some ways, you're better off doing something that isn't a law degree, unless you really want to. I really enjoyed my law degree, but you don't have to do that. Um, you can do something called a conversion course, which is a year-long, a year-long course after your degree, um, that allows you to then go off and become a, become a lawyer. So that I mean that was following on to my next question in terms of advice for people switching careers to law. Is the conversion? Do you ha- you have to have a um, a bachelor's or is it a master's before you can? Yeah, yeah. So you have to have a bachelor's and then you can switch to. Um, doing the conversion course and then you can either become a solicitor or a barrister um and uh, like one of the judges i used to work for lord sumption i think his view was go off and do something else and then convert because you'll be a better lawyer if you've got some background in something else what do you what do you think the most difficult thing about the industry is um do you and how do you how do you sort of make that work for you if it is a particular hurdle that you have to overcome I think being a lawyer is a wonderful profession and I get a lot from it and I ha- I'm very grateful to the profession for everything it's given me, both in terms of life skills and opportunities um, to see parts of the world and to, to buy a home. Um, 
I think the most difficult thing is that your your success is measured in part by the amount of time you put in. So if you're a solicitor, you usually have uh, billable hours targets. So you have to do a certain amount of hours a day. Um, and if you're a barrister, then you're self-employed and, and you're, you're charging based on the amount of hours you've worked on something. And I think that is a problem because... Um, it's not you're not being rewarded for doing a good job you're being rewarded for being sat in a particular place for a certain amount of hours now obviously the situation is more complicated than that but i think that's the part of the job that if i could find a way of reforming it i would reform that and what do you think what's been your biggest failure at work and what did you learn from it um my biggest failure has been um juggling too much and um not learning to say no and so I've, I've now learned that but I think that um, there was periods in my life where I said yes to things that I shouldn't have said yes to because I probably didn't have um, as much time as I needed to be able to commit to them so I think um, the lesson I've learned is to say no more often and you've touched on some of these themes um, throughout us chatting um, now, but what do you think are the most important qualities for those who are successful in law are? Attention to detail is a really important quality. Um, so being able to read something and knowing that the whole case could turn on one sentence in, the, in a pile of 2,000 pages. And if you miss that sentence, then you've potentially ruined your chances of winning so attention to detail is really important um having a critical mind a logical mind it really helps and i think dispassion actually i think sometimes people think well i want to be a lawyer because i want to you know do loads of good work and i want to be able to defend people and that's fantastic but i think the best way of representing your client is to be dispassionate so keep them at arm's length keep the issue at arm's length and being able to take an objective view will help and the reason it helps is because the decision maker whether it's the jury or a judge or a series of judges is dispassionate they're at arm's length so you need to be able to look at your case the way that they look at it rather than the way that your client's looking at it and just out of my own curiosity has there ever been we're thinking of sort of the prism through which the law law system works but also is seen externally is have you have you ever had any and yeah, this won't go in. This is this is not going to be in the podcast. But this is just out of curiosity. Um, have you ever had any cases where a particular subject or sort of defendant hasn't been looked at completely um, at arm's length? Like somebody's somebody's um, biases have come into play that's really stuck out for you. Sort of like a this is this is a disproportionate sentence or this is a disproportionate um, response. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And you can, you, can, you can put this in if you want. I mean, I was uh, prosecuting a traffic list when I was a very junior barrister. So that's where you sit in a magistrate's court and you prosecute all of the small traffic cases that come in that day. And at the beginning of the day, we had a, a person, a middle class European who lived in a gated community and had a doorman. And that the offence was failing to respond after being notified by the police twice um, asking for information and he came up with all these excuses as to why he hadn't responded and said that he hadn't received the letters and and the magistrates were like okay fine we believe you 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 know you're not going to be found guilty then at the end of the day we had um 
uh, an African man who had a really plausible excuse for why he had not received the letters. And the magistrates um, found him guilty. And there is only one way of explaining what was going on there. Um, well, it's, it's two things, really. It's class and race. Um, and it was both those things. And you know, I, I suppose it really perfectly illustrates the point I made earlier about it being not just about race, but also about class, because you had this middle class European in like a blazer and lovely, like, you know, expensive boots. And then you had this... Driving moccasins. Yeah, exactly. And then you had this like African man who he was sorry I say African he was Nigerian um uh and he spoke with a thick accent um and he you know I could tell from his file that he was living in a, in public housing um and he'd been moved and so that's why he hadn't received the letters and I just I just think it's so unfair that magistrates get to make these decisions and so much of the time they are notably visibly um, different to the decisions that they've made even earlier in the same day. And we were talking about reckoning and um, race and class, and especially in the UK. What do you think the the sort of the court system in the UK's reckoning needs to be? What do you think needs to change for things like that, things, things like that case not to happen in the future? Well, I think one thing that we need to think about doing is either getting rid of magistrates, which I know is really drastic, or completely reforming the way that it works. Because at the moment, to be a magistrate, you're not paid. Um, you have to volunteer at least 10 days of your time. And so the only people... Instantly. Instantly. Yeah. So that that only attracts a certain type of person. Um, and so I think that we need to either reform or abolish that system um, and have the decisions made by judges or lawyers. Um or at the very least, try and attract a more diverse group of people to it. Um, so that's a problem. Um, and then I guess the profession itself, I think the bar needs to reform. I think the more that you have diverse people doing the prosecuting and the defending, the more likely you are to respect the different lived experiences of the people in the criminal justice system. So I think that needs to reform. But then also I think the government needs to invest more money in the system itself because it's on its knees. And the people that suffer the most are the are the are victims but also um defendants and the, yeah the people who can uh, based off nothing that they can change themselves outwardly like physically speedily put in boxes that they can't get out of like as, as soon as you get i mean in denmark they've just had a they've just had a change in their law um for citizenship because it's impossible to get citizenship here um and they there's this ongoing discussion within the sort of within within sort of journalism and news and where ethically it should be because there is um, if you have a minor offense it initially started as if you if you rape somebody or if you commit armed robbery you will never ever be allowed to have citizenship and that I can understand but it it's it's since become a much much more watered down um, sort of requirements so you can almost have you can almost have like a traffic violation and and that is the way of basically shutting the door for the rest of your life from 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 tr from truly having citizenship of the country that you might have been living in all of your life or at least sort of two-thirds of your life and that's um that's yeah i mean that doesn't sit very well with me but that's uh, it's obviously denmark and that's that's a chat for another day maybe yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that's really important to say there is 
if you, let's say, um, you were talking about committing armed robbery, I think it's really important to treat people alike. So if, if I came to Denmark and you and I both committed armed robbery, you have to identify what it is that you're punishing the person for and what parts of the element you are punishing are, are punishment. Um, so if you're being punished by, by being given 10 years in prison and I'm being punished by being given 10 years in prison, then on what basis am I also being punished by being told, oh, you can't be a citizen? And I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that there aren't political reasons to do that. I'm just saying that whenever you're talking about prisoners and dangerous, violent offences, it's really easy for governments to use that as an excuse to push through legislation um, that kind of is populist in nature. And I think it's really important that when you are taking away somebody's liberty, uh, or penalising them on behalf of the state that you think really carefully about what you are actually doing and why you are doing it and that it shouldn't be a political tool. I think maybe maybe the problem in, in Denmark as, as the UK sort of is is the thing that is not talked about is class more than more than the colour of your skin. In Denmark, it's much more racism that's not talked about because class is not such an issue, whereas racism really is. If if you could have your time again, would you still choose law? Why or why not? Um, I avoid shoulda, woulda, coulda, because I don't think it's a healthy way to live life. So the answer is I would do everything the same because I don't think it's good to focus too much on things that could have been different. Let me rephrase. <laughs> um, do you ever think that there is another career, another industry for you to work in? Absolutely. I'd love to keep writing, whether that's kind of writing another book, TV writing. I'd love to work in TV. Don't know what that means or what that looks like, but definitely um, don't know what lies ahead. But uh, I think it's kind of exciting not to know. And if you could st- distill all your advice for a newbie to law, thinking it might be for them, down to a sentence or two, what would it be? Don't worry about the money. Uh, find the area of of law that you find most interesting. And if you find it interesting, you'll enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, you're more likely to be good at it. And if you are good at it, you're more likely to to make money in the long run. So the the big commercial areas of law, if you enjoy them, great, but they're the ones that make money. And if you don't enjoy them, don't do it just for the sake of it from somebody who did for a while. Mohsen Zaidi, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with criminal barrister Mohsin Zaidi. If you'd like to hear more episodes from this series, search for us on Apple or Spotify. Next week's guest is television presenter Charlotte Smith. So what do you do? Is an ampersand speech production. <laughs>